her body was discovered in a nearby wooded area. She was stabbed 19 times and left for dead where two adults have been shot to death. 143 people have been murdered. Hundreds more have been shot. She had been stabbed to death. It was the bloodiest scene I think I've ever been to. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Dark and Deadly. We are your hosts. I'm Haley. And I'm Gina. And before we do anything, we just wanted to give a special shout out to Drew Noga. Thank you for continuing to support and interact with us even during our super quiet times. We we love you. Oh yeah, it's so appreciated. So I feel like we start this way every single episode and it's <laughs> that we're sorry that we suck at uploading. Um, but hear me out. After moving here, a wave of, like, constant sickness hit my household as soon as I brought my kids up here from Nevada. Literally, my youngest got the stomach flu the day we moved here. Then he got a cold from starting daycare for the first time ever. And then my oldest got the stomach flu. And then me and my oldest got the cold. And then my youngest got an ear infection from said cold. And I kid you not, I got maybe five hours of sleep in a three-day period. And not only that, I just don't have a ton of free time to research and everything anymore like I used to because I got a new job and the schedule with my kids is a lot more time consuming than it used to be so I use my I use my 15 minute breaks to walk up the seven flights of stairs which it's that's a chore it really is and honestly the other day I was sick and I decided I'm gonna walk up to the fourth (gasps) floor up the stairs right to go get ice in my cup and I was snapchatting my friend Michaela like a video on the way up of me huffing and puffing and I literally said out loud sometimes I hate myself and the there was a girl walking down the stairs <laughs> and we just like got on the platform at the same time I said that and I was just like oh my gosh and she just like laughed and like looked at me and then walked down the stairs so now I have to quit my job um <laughs> and I hope she doesn't recognize me because I don't remember what she looked like I was so embarrassed but anyway, that's like my worst nightmare. It was, I literally, I was like, okay, mm, <laughs> now I really hate myself. <laughs> oh, but anyways, long story short, we're going to do a better job at all of this research and writing and hope recording falls into place and we can adjust to a new schedule. So bear with us here, guys. We're trying our best and we really appreciate the listeners who have asked where we are and checked on us. It means a lot to us that you care enough to wonder where we are. And with that, we're going to get going. So, Gina, did you want to go first? I would love to go first. Oh, I guess we should say what we're doing. Oh! <laughs> this is February's special episode, which is now March's <laughs> special episode. <laughs> Probably one month we will do, like, a freebie episode in addition to um, our normal four up- uploads that we would do in, like, a month span. Right. We'll do a freebie with another listener chosen episode yeah and we have some kind of like fun not so um intense ideas for episodes let us know if you'd like to hear like we were thinking about 911 transcript phone call mm-hmm. episodes they could be just like funny ones to kind of break up the super intense cases so yeah and we'll just try and knock some extra ones out and then our bonus one we'll we'll do ad free mm-hmm. so yeah so we are doing uh, wrongfully convicted mm-hmm. this month, and these are just sad. I feel so bad for the people. I do too, because it I'm, there's more than one victim. Oh yeah, you know, mm-hmm. fully. So. Take it away. Okay, 
My case today is about the murders of Kim, 35, and her two children, Brad, who was seven, and Jill, who was five, on September 28th of 2000. David Cam, who was a former Indiana State police officer, had been playing basketball with some friends at the local church. Wasn't far from their house. When he arrived home and opened up the garage, what he saw shocked him. His wife was laying on the garage floor, shot, and his two children also shot and sitting in their family's Ford Bronco still. Okay, I almost did this case. So you did? I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. Oh, good. Because I just like briefly read up on it and I was like, oh my gosh. Well, and I'm curious to see what people think at the end. Right. Just because there's there's so much back and forth in this case. And there's case. not really like a clear No, there's answer. not a clear... Well, we'll get there and yeah. then I'll explain what I think it is. So Kim and Jill had been shot execution style and Brad had been shot in the chest. His 911 call, David's, was pretty brutal. It's what you would expect of... A man having found his two children. children and his wife right. dead in his garage. When David got into the garage, he went into, like, full police mode. He checked his two kids to see if they were still alive. When he felt his son, he was still warm, so he thought, oh my gosh, I potentially can save him. He got him out of the car, laid him down on a sweatshirt, and began CPR. Unfortunately, his son was shot in such a way that his spinal cord was severed, Ugh. and he was too far gone. Yeah. His wife was half undressed and her shoes were placed on top of the car, weirdly, and her feet were also beat up. They had scratch marks on them and like abrasions mm -hmm. where and bruises in an odd way. Like you never hear specifically about feet being messed yeah. up and I have a complete foot phobia. Well, I wonder if somebody, you know how like if you grab somebody from under the arms and you dragged them? But they, she had marks on top of her feet. Maybe she was fighting back. and they Yeah. Had, I don't know. Yeah, that's weird. She had blood pooled all around her, and it was, I mean, pretty gruesome scene. He called 911, and his former co-worker showed up on the scene to begin their work. Crime scene investigator Rob Stite was called to photograph the scene. Stites was luckily enough also a blood spatter expert. Oh, okay. So... He lucked out there and started to notice what he thought were oddities at the crime scene. Almost, it was almost as if the crime scene had been staged or someone had begun the cleanup process and then given up halfway through. Yeah. Like, it was just a bigger mess than what they were expecting or it was staged in such a weird way to make it look like spring of the moment someone came upon them and killed them. Right. Or maybe they got uh, spooked. Right. Yep. So blood that was coming from Kim appeared as though at the far end of the pool of blood, someone had started to clean up with bleach, like I was mm -hmm. saying. So it was just clear liquid. So like the blood was coming down and then it turned clear. Oh. Almost as if it was mixed, mixed with bleach and someone right. had just done a piss poor job. He also noticed that David had several blood spatters on him that looked like high-velocity impact splatters, meaning that David would have had to have been pretty close yeah. to get that to come back on him. I've seen Dexter. Yes. <laughs> or it just sprays up on his mask. Exactly. Yeah. And then the cops that worked with him started to talk. 
Apparently, David was a bit of a cheater. He had cheated on Kim multiple times, so instantly he is suspect number one. Mm -hmm. As he should be. Yep, exactly. And he expected that as well. Yeah. Because he's a cop. He understands that, like, he's going to be looked at. So it wasn't an oddity to him that he would be called down to the station to get questioned or have people looking at him. So this is how they thought the crime went down. David snuck out from basketball, drove the only four minutes it took for him to get back to his house, shot his family, and went back to the game like nothing happened. Okay. And then the game was over, came back home, made the surprise, and yada yada. Now armed with the analysis they received from Stites, they were able to get a probable cause warrant, and within 72 hours of the crime being committed... David was arrested. Okay. So they hook, line, sinker. They're like, we got him. Yeah. He's done. But remember that sweatshirt that was under Brad? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that wasn't any of the Cam's sweatshirt. Oh. So whose sweatshirt was that? Yeah. The cops initially missed that piece of evidence because it was placed in the body bag with Brad. Okay. But couldn't you, like, generally say, like, if you committed a crime, like, that's not my sweatshirt and that doesn't belong to any of us? Yes, but it had a name in the collar. Okay. Thrift store. (laughs) Well, yes. Okay. (laughs) The name inside of the collar was Backbone. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thrift store for thugs? Yeah. (laughs) David's (laughs) defense... David's defense thief... David's defense team took it to a private lab and had it analyzed, and they were able to find a full-profile DNA of an unknown male. David's lawyers asked prosecuting attorney Stan Faith to run the DNA profile against the CODIS database. Stan Faith let the defense attorneys know that it didn't turn up with any matches. Okay. So, no hits, unfortunately. Right. His trial was essentially over before it began. Uh, The prosecution essentially tarnished his character right out of the gate. So all of the women that he had essentially talked to in that period of time, Mm. they had come testify. (laughs) And they laid into him, talked about their affairs, that he flirted with them, that when they tried to end it, he would get upset that they were trying to end it. Lovely. Yes. Take notes, people. Don't cheat. No. Or murder. Both. Don't do either. Don't do either, Be a good person. I have to imagine that it wasn't a hard leap for the jury to make a guilty verdict. Yeah. At all. Right. Especially after hearing the blood spatter expert's testimony. He went over everything that he found in there. And it was one after the other. And it's science. You can't... Yes. You can't... And this guy was cheating on his wife repeatedly. You're thinking that he's just... A horrible human who killed his wife and his kids to get away from his marriage. Exactly. And that's what prosecution painted it as. Even though the prosecution only had somewhat circumstantial evidence, the damage was done. The jury deliberated for only three days and David was sentenced to spend 195 years in prison. His team immediately filed an appeal and argued that the mystery sweatshirt was dismissed in favor of character attacks. So because they had painted him in that horrible light with all of the affairs, they tainted the jury pool because the women never said, like, he talked about harming his family. And all of these relationships happened years before the murder. From what everyone says, that last year... He was Uh, good. They were good. They were in a great place. 
no family. I couldn't find any stories of him continuing to have affairs. Like this was, he matured, grew up. He left the police force, uh, started working with his uncle, was making good money. So did the wife know that he was having affairs? I didn't come across that. Okay. From what I read, it does sound like... She was aware. She was aware, and they had worked through all of the right. infidelity. Because how would everybody else know? Yes. If she didn't know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It would be two years after he initially filed his appeal before he was granted a retrial. And they did give him on the basis that the jury pool was tainted. Okay. He didn't have a fair shot. And especially because those affairs had nothing to do with what happened in that time period, because they were way before... They yeah. couldn't find anyone close to that time or that he was having a current affair. And finally, the defense team took that second chance to run the DNA that was found on the gray sweatshirt, and they ran it through CODIS again. Yeah. And they got a match. Oh. The DNA belonged to Charles Bonet, a convicted felon with a rap sheet for attacking women and stealing their shoes. Interesting. Shoes. Yes. He had been released from prison only three months prior, and his nickname in prison? Backbone. Okay. So detectives brought Charles in for questioning, but he had a reason as to why his sweatshirt would have ended up at the crime scene. He had donated it to the Salvation Army. <clears throat> I should be a detective. <laughs> yep. That's a plausible explanation. Yeah. I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. But, but, <laughs> I knew, I know there's a but coming. But also, Charles had a history of stalking, attacking, and stealing women's shoes. And Kim's shoes were placed on, on top of the car. car, and her feet had weird marks on them. If somebody has a foot fetish, they do weird stuff with shoes and feet. It's not, I feel like it, they're combined, right? Yeah. I don't know about this, though. So. I don't like that. There was an additional piece of evidence that wasn't brought to the first trial. A fully bloody handprint on the inside of the car as if someone was leaning in to shoot the kids. Oh. That was found. They had a palm print. It was never compared to David in the first trial. Why? I don't know. But guess who the bloody handprint did match? Charles. Okay. So he was fully at the crime scene. Uh Uh-huh. After the bloody handprint was found inside Kim's vehicle, he was arrested on March 4th, 2005, and charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And this is where Charles' story about the gray sweatshirt started to change. While while he initially insisted he had donated to Salvation Army, he later claimed that he knew David and that the ex-cop had the mas- was the mastermind behind the homicides. Charles said he used the sweatshirt to wrap up a gun that he brought to David And when he said he wasn't in the garage, but he heard three gunshots the night of the murders and left right after. Okay, so he's saying that he didn't do it, but he knew He heard it. And heard it. Yes, so he was aware of what was happening. But why was his palm print in the car? In the car. Exactly. And keep in mind that Charles told detectives that David and him never communicated by phone. He couldn't prove that, like, he was paid for the gun couldn't prove anything and they could tell that they did not communicate there there was no phone calls going back and forth between their two phone numbers okay so charles didn't have a way to, to pin this pin it on him right like there really wasn't any evidence that they even knew each other 
And here we go into the second trial. Charles was tried first, convicted, and sentenced to 225 years in prison. David's trial began on January 17, 2006. With the affairs now inadmissible, the new Floyd County prosecutor, Keith Henderson, argued that David had been molesting his daughter and killed his wife and children to cover up the crime. Oh. Do they have evidence? evidence? So... The evidence that Keith was arguing was a single blunt force trauma injury to Jill's genitals. A medical examiner, though, who testified for the defense, totally disagreed with the state's theory that it was the result of sexual abuse, arguing her hymen was still intact. Okay. And it was just one of, like, many blunt force trauma injuries that she had to her body. So she was like, you can't prove that this one instant is that the prosecution presented charles story that david was a shooter and charles was only there to sell david a gun Mm -hmm. david was convicted a second time on march 3rd 2006 and was sentenced to life without parole okay but david appealed the conviction citing the prejudicial nature of the molestation allegations and the lack of evidence linking the injuries to him And the Indiana Supreme Court agreed with him again and granted a second reversal, which is hard. Right. I thought that you couldn't be tried for the same crime more than once. Or is that only if they find evidence that you could not be You can't be convicted of the same crime more than once. Like, so if it's that double jeopardy. So have you seen that movie? So her husband and her are, this woman and her her husband are out on a boat. Mm-hmm. And she goes to sleep. They're having, like, a wonderful night together. They're madly in love. They have a son. Um, she goes out. She's sleeping. He's next to her. When she wakes up, there's blood everywhere. He's missing. She gets tried and convicted of his murder. She calls her best friend who took over raising her son. And here's her husband in the background. What? Yeah. I'm, like, giving away the whole plot. Here's her (laughs) husband in the background. Well, homegirl's like, I can't be convicted of murdering him twice. So I'm going to go murder him now. Okay. But he got 195 years. He wasn't actually convicted? No, it was overturned. His conviction was overturned. And he had to be retried. Okay. So the state said... It's overturned. We're charging you again for this, and we will retry you. Okay. So it wasn't dismissed, like, with prejudice or anything like that. Okay. I don't think double jeopardy had anything to do with what you were saying necessarily, but you also cannot be convicted for murdering the same person twice. Right. So the Indiana Supreme Court granted a second reversal stating, missing from this record is any competent evidence of the premise that the defendant molested the child. So they're essentially saying there's There's no no evidence. No, you cannot prove this. And I'm like, the two judges who stood over this case have to be sitting here a bit going like, well, I messed up. Yeah. You'd think. And like, here's where it gets bad. If this all wasn't bad enough, here's where it gets bad. Remember that blood spatter expert, Rob Stythe? Mm -hmm. Guess who wasn't an actual blood spatter expert? Oh. Oh, good old Bobby. Rob, Bobby. <laughs> Rob testified for the defense in the third trial, admitting he had perjured himself in the first two trials. 
His comments that, that the spot on David's shirt were high-velocity impact spray was the cornerstone of the probable, probable cause affidavit that led to David's arrest and his testimony at the first two trials helped the prosecution win David's convictions. It's like, he lied about everything. He had no idea what he was doing. He was just asked to go and take photos and notes. But his notes were then used were they not for the probable cause affidavit. His credentials? Well, mm, just wait. Because if I was David and I got out, I would be suing. Just wait. He had previously testified that he was an expert blood spatter pattern analyst and a professor at Portland State University who was in the process of obtaining his PhD. Credentials which were fake. Mm. None of this was real. Shocking. He, yeah. He said that the original prosecutor, Stan Faith, helped create these fraudulent <gasps> credentials. Mm-hmm. Wow. During the third trial, he outlined how he was sent to the crime scene to photograph and take notes. Despite his lack of formal training in the field or work experience as a crime scene analyst, his notes ended up being used in the probable cause affidavit, which, with him being listed as a crime scene reconstructionist, title he didn't earn. The defense pointed out several aspects of his notes that were later proven to be false, including HVIS on the garage door, which later was proven to be petroleum-based product. So that wasn't even right. And the um, the his opinion that there was like a cleanup at the scene wasn't accurate. So blood and the serum in your blood separate. Okay. So that was just natural separation of what's in your body so not only is he not qualified to make statements like that he literally doesn't even know science no and he wasn't charged with perjury for his testimony this caught they estimate that this cost the state of indiana 4.5 million dollars retrying him each time and he wasn't charged with perjury what the heck i halfway wonder if they worked out a deal with him probably probably because they didn't want any issues with the prosecution I honestly probably. And here we go on the third trial. <laughs> Cuz they were going to try him ag- like obviously again, right? I'd be like I'm getting sick of this. Can we just <laughs> Right. But now they have a whole new idea for why he did it. Okay. So far we've gotten he was cheating and he wanted his wife and kids out of the way. Right. Pulled a Chris Watts. Yeah. Over in Colorado. The second one, he molested his daughter and didn't want to get caught, killed the whole family. Mm -hmm. Third, he wanted that life insurance money. Oh. That's the route they're taking this time. Okay. And I feel like if we have three different motives, what are we doing? Right. What are we doing? Charles Bonet testified against David for the first time, accusing him of luring him out to the home before shooting his own family and then turning the gun on him. So his what his theory was that um, David picked a random felon, found a random guy to then pin this crime on. Okay. This one saw the introduction of new DNA evidence that wasn't presented in the first two trials. Dr. Richard... I... Eichelenboom. Not going to pronounce that right. Eichelenboom? Eichelenboom? Eichelenboom. That sounds fun. Testified that he found touch DNA consistent with Charles in several places on the clothing of both Kim and Jill. His DNA was found on Kim's underwear, the arm of her shirt, 
on Kim's broken off fingernail and on the stomach oh, of I don't like Jill's that. shirt. I know, right? And it was found on the stomach of Jill's shirt. So these results seem to disprove Charles saying that he never touched the victims. Mm-hmm. Like, he obviously touched the victims. Right. And his um, David's defense co-counsel argued that if Charles physically attacked the family, which the DNA seems to suggest, it was unlikely that David was the shooter. Right. Yep. On t- October 24th, 2013, a jury found David not guilty of all charges. David's attorney described it as vindication. Yeah. So, what do you think? I mean, with all of the evidence, I mean, there's nothing that physically proves David was there at the time of the crime, right? And I did think that when I was, uh, when I first heard this case, there were people at the basketball game that said he didn't leave. Oh, no, he didn't leave. Everyone was like, no, he didn't leave. But the cops seemed to ignore it. I think that the prosecuting attorneys did a lot of damage. Right. Like, I think that they're, and that's what David argued, was that I was set up here. Like, this is ridiculous. First, they ignored the bloody handprint. How the heck do you ignore bloody handprint? Exactly. How do you ignore a bloody handprint? You're just like, hmm... That might have been there beforehand. Right. We're just going to ignore it. No. And then the sweatshirt that they didn't test it. Yeah. Hello. I just, I, and then using like the fall, I just feel like they zoned it on him, decided he was the one that did it. Right. And went full ham down that road. Yeah. And we kind of see that in my case too, where like they lock eyes on somebody and they just don't give any other idea that it's somebody else. Right. And that is so dangerous. Yeah. You can't do that. No. You have to, like, exhaust all efforts. So, before I start off, I just wanted to say that I gathered a lot of my information from another podcast called An Absurd Result by Jewel Banville. It has seven episodes covering this entire case, and it includes interviews. Really? Almost everybody that's involved in this case. So, it's very in-depth. She's a journalist. She does an amazing job. I really kind of scratched the surface of this case because there's so much in it. Like, I cover main key points Mm -hmm. you know but she like really goes in depth so if you want to dive in further into this case go listen to an absurd result uh it's really well done super fascinating and frustrating all in one which we'll we'll hear so as i was looking for a case i ended up going through the innocence project website and i came across a picture of the man i'm going to be talking about today and that was a picture of jimmy bromgard who was arrested when he was just 18 years old for the rape of a young girl. So this case takes place in Billings, Montana, when the victim, whose name is Linda Glantz, was just eight years old. And I'll be discussing a little bit about, I know, Linda first, because she's our first victim in this case. And then we'll spend the rest of the time talking about our second victim, Jimmy, and go kind of in and out and how they're intertwined, obviously. So Linda was the second child of five. Her family had just moved into their new home within the last year. It was kind of like a... I want to say like a split level home. Mm -hmm. So most of them have their own bedrooms. Some of of them shared a bedroom. And on March 20th, 1987, which when you guys are listening to this was yesterday. Oh. Because we'll be 
uploading Monday the 21st. Yep. So that's crazy. Just after four in the morning, she woke up to see a stream of light coming from out of the hallway into her bedroom. And when her eyes began to focus, she could see someone crouched in the doorway. Mm. Right? That's terrifying. That is terrifying. Terrifying. My biggest nightmare. So freaking Someone scary. standing in the doorway. Ugh. That's or like, just like crouched, animalistic. That's like East Area Rapist stuff. I hate it. Have you listened to how he would be in the doorway for those No, runners? because I would literally die. The best, the best podcast for East Area Rapist, Original Night Stalker, um, Golden State Killer, mm-hmm. is the Case Files. I think there's like, it's a four part episode, but he interviews like the victims, the detectives. Yeah. People. Best, best for recommending podcasts. Have to go listen we are, to those. We just love supporting all of those. So yes. we'll put that one in our show notes as well yeah. as the other one that I discussed. She sees this guy crouched in her in her doorway. She recalls that it didn't really scare her at first to see this person there, which I don't know why because I would literally have a heart attack. Yeah. But then she was attacked by him. <laughs> the intoxicated man moved closer to her, and I just want to give a trigger warning. Obviously, we're going to be talking about a rape of a child, so. I'm not getting into super big detail, but he shoved a gag in her mouth and told her to shut up or he would kill her. And at that point in time, thoughts of being kidnapped raced through her mind. She didn't think originally that she was going to be killed, which we've kind of talked about that beforehand too, where you've brought up multiple times, like kids probably really, that's not their first thought is to be murdered. You know, they're more expecting to be taken away from their home than for someone to actually kill them. So because I think most parents haven't, hammer it into your head you're going to be kidnapped right not that you're going to be yeah you're in a grocery store like hey you need to stay close or someone's going to take you yeah yeah so linda was raped by his by this stranger vaginally anally and orally Mm. everybody else in the home was asleep while this occurred and when the man was done he placed a pillow over her head and told her not to move before leaving the home he stole her mother's purse and her dad's coat linda laid there for a little bit before racing down to her parents room Waking up her dad, she didn't see her mom. She didn't know it at the time, but her mother had actually gone into her brother's room that night to comfort him from a nightmare, and she ended up just falling asleep there and staying with him. Mm -hmm. So her mom was immediately there. So she woke her dad up in a panic. He searched the entire house, and at first he really didn't believe her, and neither did her mom. She thought, they thought it was probably a nightmare, like nobody was in the house, you're Mm -hmm. fine, you're safe. And she was like, I did not have a nightmare. There was a man here. You need to go look through the house. So... He ends up searching the house. He sees that the bathroom window was open where the assailant had come through. And what had happened is he, the guy had climbed onto a swing set, swing set they had in the backyard, climbed through the window, stuck like a stick in it so that he could easily just wouldn't have to worry about shoving Mm -hmm. it up afterwards. And that's how he got out. Yeah. So obviously... With that in mind, too, there had to be some sort of planning, Mm -hmm. which at the same time is super haunting because the man was drunk, but Linda can remember that he just seemed inebriated, like she could smell the alcohol on him, and for someone to come in and out of like that, out of the house like that, you would have to have had some sort of planning and scoping out of that residence before. Oh, yeah. Her dad immediately called the police to report the attack, and two officers arrived shortly after the call was placed. They showed up really quick, and then shortly after that, two detectives came to the scene as well. At the time, Linda's older sister, Michelle, who was 11 years old, 
was there and none of the siblings knew what had happened to Linda until years and years later. Their parents didn't say what happened to her. Michelle assumed something else had happened that morning and that's why the police were there. She didn't know any details other than the fact that before she left for school that morning, Linda told her he put his penis in my mouth. So can you imagine as a, a sibling hearing that and then not having any answers either? Um, I know my brother's reaction. Right. So, yeah. The police questioned Linda about what had happened, and in as much detail as an eight-year-old can describe at that age, she told them everything she could. She went to an all-Catholic school, so they didn't really know anatomy, really, Mm -hmm. you know? And the terms were, like, anally and everything like that. So... She described it in as best detail as she could, which her mom was there and was just absolutely devastated. She was sobbing so bad. The police asked her to leave the room because she was so hysterical and they couldn't talk to Linda very well because of that. So her mom had to leave the room, which is also probably super traumatic for Linda. But they said that Linda was very matter of fact Mm -hmm. and, you know, just kind of... And at that point, it was probably complete shock because this is right after it happened right nothing has set in yet and she's probably still just running off of adrenaline so she told the police what she knew the police asked if she were to see the man again if she would be able to recognize him and she said yes after the police interview they take linda to the hospital in order to get a rape kit done for dna evidence and they had her sit with a sketch artist soon after that And I don't know if this is standard practice to have a child sit with a sketch artist. I feel like, I don't know if I would trust even someone under 18 to to describe someone to you, you know? Yeah, um, and I can't find anything online if this is a standard practice to do with children. I mean, I guess a kid could recall what a person looked like but could they accurately describe the features right because she also explained like almond eyes how do you describe yeah. what almond eyes are exactly and she did describe like this man looked like my dad's friend but it wasn't my dad's friend oh i know that for sure so it's just it's hard to say and most of her description was he was young he was an older teen boy had acne blondish brown hair Oh, so, like... Kind of short in stature, skinny. That describes 80% of high school boys. Right. So, yeah. They had her sit with a sketch artist, and one of the officers working at the time looked at it and said, hey, that looks like Jimmy Bromgard. Now, Jimmy was no stranger to the law. He was only 18 at the time, but he had been arrested previously for some kind of minor crimes, and then he was also arrested for Grand Theft Auto. So... (laughs) He was out of jail for a bit by that point. He was well known around that area for being a troublemaker. And once that officer pointed out the fact that he looked like Bromgard on the sketch, they didn't waste any time on getting together a lineup lineup with him in it. And like we talked about with David, once they zoned in on Bromgard, it was nobody else. Mm -hmm. So lucky for them, Bromgard was currently in jail at the time for beating up another teenager. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. He was not in jail at the time of the assault, though, so just so we're clear on that, he was he was not in jail at that point. When they put him in the lineup, Jimmy had on a green shirt, whereas all of the other men in the lineup had on blue shirts. 
Oh, so like immediately signaling that he's different. Right. And some of the men in the lineup were actually guards that worked at the jail. And I don't know if they just couldn't find other people. I don't, I don't know. And the men were asked to step forward and say, you better shut up or else I will kill you, which is something obviously Linda told the police was said during the attack. Mm-hmm. When Jimmy stepped forward and spoke, Linda was visibly shaken and pointed him out. They asked for hair samples from him, both pubic and head hair. Mm-hmm. And these samples were sent to the Montana Crime Lab director at the time. And his name is Arnold Melnikoff. We'll get to more on him later. At the time of the crime, Linda's mom's purse had been stolen, like I said, and inside was a checkbook. The checkbook was later found on the same street that Jimmy lived on, which isn't a good look for him, obviously, but that's also not condemning evidence. You can't just base it off of it being a street. No. Jimmy got busted for stealing a Chevy Blazer not long before the incident with Linda had occurred. This was the Grand Theft Auto I was talking about. And for that crime, he did a stint in a juvenile correctional facility called Pine Hills. At the time he was there, he had an option uh, to stay an additional three months to finish up and get his his high school diploma. Oh. But he wanted to leave. If he would have stayed there, he would have never gone to prison. But once they assumed he was guilty, like I said, officers never looked into anybody else. So the morning of the trial... Linda got ready for school, but as she was walking out the door, her dad pulled her aside and told her she was going to be at the trial today. They didn't tell her beforehand, and I think that was probably a wise decision in some regard because she's not anxious about it. Right. I would have been pissed if my parents did that to me, but she gave her testimony and walked out. She didn't stay. She wasn't there beforehand. She wasn't there after afterwards. She gave her testimony, left. Good. During the trial, Jimmy maintained his innocence, even telling the court that he believed whoever did this heinous crime should be locked up forever or even get the death penalty. We're going to talk about Peter Neufeld, who is the co-founder of the National Innocence Project. And he got involved in Jimmy's case in 2000. And this is kind of like where he really started to dig in and see all of this, for lack of a better word, shit evidence that they had against Jimmy. Mm -hmm. So... Linda, at the time of the lineup, had told officials that she was only 60 to 65% sure that Bronkard was her attacker. Okay. What? Despite her obvious physical reaction to seeing him, she gave them a percentage of 60 to 65%. And honestly, at such a young age, he's the only one wearing a different color shirt than the rest. I think psychologically, she was coerced in more than one way. And I definitely think that that also had a lot to do with it. Because... You put somebody with a different shirt on, they're going to stand out more. Mm-hmm. And what other eight-year-old do you know that would be like, oh, yeah, I'm 65% sure about something? You don't learn percentages until, like, fourth or fifth grade. Right. So, I don't know if she had authorities or if she had told authorities, like, it may or may not be him. I'm not really sure. And then the officer was like, well, are you 10, 65, 80% sure? And she was probably like, I'm just 65% sure. Right. You know, it's just a weird adult response to come out of a child's mouth unprompted. Yeah. In today's world, if someone were to give a percentage like that for a lineup, it would be completely thrown out. There's no way they would ever put any weight in that. No, you can't. It's just not good enough. So, Peter Neufeld gave a great comparison. He said, if you want to get an idea of just how bad 60 to 65% is, 
If you were told that you could get on this airplane and fly from Montana to San Francisco and there was a 60 to 65% chance that it would land safely, would you get on that plane? No. No. Because it's no. not good enough. <laughs> I barely can tolerate like the 99.99%. <laughs> right. So far in the case against Jimmy, we have very flaky evidence. I would hope that in today's world, this wouldn't be enough to sway a jury. So we have no alibi for him, a past criminal record, and I just want to mention that he had no sex crimes against against him. They were mm-hmm. all just petty thefts and stuff like that until the, the blazer he stole. The checkbook just happened to be on the same street as his house, but contained no fingerprints that matched his, an identification from a traumatized little girl that wasn't 100%. 110% sure right. it was him. And neighbors stating that he was a troublemaker, so it was probably him. And that's it. Absolutely none of that is concrete evidence. And honestly, it gets worse. Jimmy has stated previously as well that any crime he committed beforehand, he was always honest about. If he got caught, he was willing to do the time and take the consequences for his actions. Since Jimmy's family was not able to afford some hotshot attorney, obviously the state appointed him one. Right. And unfortunately, this attorney was useless. Uh, I'll give him the fact that he was probably overworked and underpaid because he was taking on cases and being paid a flat rate per month of $1,000 regardless of the workload. Oh, gosh. Or anything. So, it sucked, but he didn't do his job. And this lawyer actually called Jimmy's mother at one point and asked her if she had any ideas on how to prove that her son was innocent. Yeah. Uh, and she was obviously like, um... What? No? Isn't that your job? <laughs> huh? Sir? <laughs> so this attorney's name is John Adams. Jimmy Bromgard thought for sure that he was going to go free because he was innocent. But his attorney really dropped the ball. He met with Jimmy once before the trial, one time, and he didn't give an opening statement or a closing statement. Peter Newfelt explains that opening statements are critical because most jurors actually make up their mind on a case just based on their reaction to opening statements, which I thought was crazy. That's scary. Very scary. Linda was asked again in court how sure she was that it was him, and her answer always stayed the same, 60 to 65%. And she was honest with the jury and with the authorities. She told them that she was not absolutely positive that it was him. And they still... Convicted him? Convicted him. We're going to get into the hair analysis at this point. And this is basically what really sold the jury, which is also scary. So, in 1975, Arnold Melnikoff, who was trained by the FBI to analyze hair under a microscope, gave his forensic analysis. This procedure he used is now considered junk science because you cannot accurately determine who a hair belongs to under a microscope. It's DNA. Like, you can't determine that. So here's a crazy statistic for you. (laughs) Just a few years ago, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers got together with the FBI, and they discovered that a fourth of all DNA exonerations at the time when prosecution used hair analysis to point to the defendant, the defendant was later found to be innocent. <gasps> a fourth. Mm-hmm. For just looking at it in a microscope? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Melnikoff was also the founder of the Montana Crime Lab, which is scary considering his royal mess up in this case. And not only did he mess up cases in Montana, but later in Washington State as well. Because Peter pretty much 
ran him out of Good. Montana. I mean, honestly. Yeah. Basically, what Melnikoff tested was that the pubic hair found at the scene in relation to Bromgard's was a 1 in 100 match, and the hair head, the head hair match was 1 in 100. So therefore, he multiplied those numbers around and concluded that the chances of it being anyone other than Jimmy Bromgard was 1 in 10,000. He claims that he was not aware of any rules that you couldn't multiply hair probabilities, which he pulled right out of his butt. And Jimmy's lawyer, who obviously wasn't in the right field of work, didn't question or challenge this at all. They're just like, okay. With Melnikoff's experience and testimony, the jury didn't need any other persuasion that Jimmy Bromgard was the man responsible for Linda's of assault. Of course not. John Adams also never filed an appeal after his conviction. <laughs> So, Jimmy requested a new lawyer, rightfully so, mm-hmm. and Newfelt kind of made it his mission, like I said, to bring down Melnikoff. He pretty much ran him out of the state of Montana because Jimmy wasn't the only victim of being wrongfully convicted from his forensic testimonies. <gasps> yeah. Oh, I'd imagine Melnikoff, one of them would have to, you'd have to start looking into all of them. Yeah. When it gets overturned, everyone's It would be a rabbit reviewed. hole. Yep. Melnikoff eventually quit the field, thank God. At barely 19 years old, Jimmy entered the prison system as a child rapist, which we all know wasn't, isn't a good thing. Not long after arriving there, another inmate practically shattered his jaw. Guards found him unconscious on the ground and rushed him to the hospital. He had to have surgery all while being shackled to the bed. His mom said that when she, like, touches his face, it feels like a bike chain. The next 14 and a half years of his life consisted of working out, reading books, playing cards, doing puzzles, and tattooing, which he still does today Today on himself and his wife when she lets him. Oh. <laughs> okay. I th- girlfriend. I don't think they're married. They offered him multiple times to take classes for sex offenders in order to reduce his sentencing time, and he always refused because he was innocent. Even if that meant he would be there for less time, it would also mean that in a way he was admitting to a crime that he didn't do. Would never and had never committed. Yep. So what's the point? Good on him for, I mean, doing that. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people would take the easy way out and just say, okay, I'll do it. While in prison, he saw Peter Neufeld on the TV talking about the Innocence Project. At this point, he rang up his new lawyer, whose name is Bill Hooks, who, unlike John Adams, was a fantastic lawyer. They appealed three separate times and were rejected each time prior to bringing Neufeld into it. Mm -hmm. And at this point in time, the Innocence Project was only taking on cases that included DNA evidence. And in Jimmy's case, it was very likely at the time that any DNA evidence taken from the scene was quite possibly destroyed. Luckily, though, for Bromgard, a student whose name is Tova found a box in the Yellowstone County Courthouse that could change the course of his life forever. (gasps) In this box contained a pair of underwear that was found in her bedroom, which had a semen stain on it that had never been tested. Unfortunately, around this time, which to give you an idea, this was in the early 2000s because he was exonerated in 2002. Not a lot of testing existed for this. Mm -hmm. And what did exist was expensive. So the test alone cost about $7,000. And Jimmy or his family was expected to pay this price because the state wasn't going to. They didn't have the money, so after getting his hopes up, he went on to think that he would more than likely be finishing out his sentence for a crime he didn't commit. Fortunately, which I didn't know this, was the Innocence Project has investors for this exact reason. Oh. They court investors. And a Rhode Island man by the name of Fred Hone paid for the test on Jimmy's behalf. Oh. He's not a great guy. Oh. <laughs> 
The California lab that they sent the sample to comes back with a verdict. The DNA sample did not belong to Jim Brummer. Of course. Once they found out that he was innocent, they put Jimmy in the hole in order to protect him from other inmates before his release. Because mm-hmm. if they knew he was getting out and attacked him, that's yep. a huge lawsuit. So, on October 1st, 2002, Jimmy walked out of prison a free man 14 and a half years after his arrest. Oh. He was now 33 years old. He moved in with his mom for a little while until he got on his feet. He had no idea how, like... Did he sue the state? Yes. Okay. He They went to a restaurant. He said the first thing that he wanted to do when he got out of prison was go swimming because he oh. just wanted to feel free. Yep. And they went to a restaurant and he was eating with his hands because they're just not used to really having good mm-hmm. utensils. And his mom was like, you can use your, your fork and your knife. And he was like, I can Obviously, the fact that Jimmy was released and able to have a life outside of prison after being stripped of his freedom for over a decade is amazing. But then you have to think about Linda and her family. Yeah. This entire time, they were living in security, believing that the man who did this was paying for his crimes. So when Linda found out, she was in complete shock and that unsettling feeling sunk in. If he didn't do it, who did? Where is he now? And will they ever find him? Eventually, they did. 12 years After Jimmy was released, 12 years, they got a hit. Ronald Dwight Tipton was arrested for a marijuana charge. Compared to the original sketch and Tipton, it's pretty obvious that it's more of a match than Jimmy's appearance. And a lot of people thought that the sketch did not look like Jimmy, and then a lot of people did. I'm going to show you the sketch, and you can kind of... So this one right here is Ronald Tipton. Oh, that... Yeah. And then that one is Jimmy. And to me, it looks more like him. Yes. More like Ronald Tipton, not yeah. Jimmy. Wrong guard. I agree. I agree. I agree. Tipton denied, denied, denied. And they couldn't get a, fe- a confession out of him as much as they tried. Just a kind of an interesting side bit. Shortly after the rape of Linda, Ronald was actually arrested for stealing some saddles. <laughs> uh-huh. And crazily enough, both Ronald and Jimmy were in the prison at the same time. <gasps> so he probably knew that he was in there. They didn't for... know each other. But he probably knew that he was in there because it was all over the Billings News. And uh, the prisoners will talk. Yeah. I'm sure he... I am sure he's he probably found like, I'm going to get away with this. Yep, because he's in there with the guy. <gasps> mm-hmm. It might be pissed. Again, I really encourage you guys to listen to the Absurd Result podcast uh, because the interviews that she got from... Everybody, but Ron's sister-in-law especially, are just mind-boggling hers in the worst way possible. So, while the journalist Jewel Banville went and tried to pay Ron a visit to get his story, she was intercepted by the sister-in-law, who was furious that she was there in the first place, because their family had been through just as much as Linda. Her words, not mine. Excuse me? Mm-hmm. Excuse me? Right. Yeah. Ron's family refused to believe science and DNA evidence, but here's the case. And, and Ron's brother convicted multiple times of sex crimes. The whole family's loony. (sighs) Here's the kicker. He will never, ever have to face the consequences of being a child rapist because of a little something called statute of limitations. Are you kidding me? Not kidding you. Are you kidding me? Nope. And here is also something else that's super frustrating. Around the initial time, uh, around the time of the initial rape, the laws were changing in Montana. They had to go in and and dig and get down to exact dates because they were changing from 
five years to 15 years to 15 plus five. It was just crazy. And unfortunately, for Linda and her family, the law during the time that the crime took place was that there was only a statute of limitations of five years for a felony crime against a minor after they turned 18. So technically speaking, Linda would have had to pursue legal action when she was 23 years old. But they didn't have Ronald on their Ronald on their radar at that time. They didn't know anything about him. I feel like if you... I don't even know how you would make this work, but if there is DNA evidence that somebody raped somebody, mm -hmm. there should be no statute of limitations. I agree. I think statute of limitations in general. If is you're, just... well, I get it if like it's, you're in your 60s and you're accusing some guy when you're 15 yeah. of raping you. Like, right. How, how would you even begin to prove uh, that no yeah. dna evidence no yeah. yeah that happened 40 plus years ago yeah like do you know what i mean though? yeah i get what you mean but in this case they like, have dna evidence. they have dna evidence so yeah so jimmy was serving time for her rape still so when they got dna evidence matching ronald tipped into the crime everybody was ecstatic and although the char they charged Ronald Tipton with three felony counts of sexual intercourse without consent, he was never actually arrested for this. So they charged him, technically, but he was never actually arrested. And he went to an arraignment hearing, pleaded not guilty, was released to go home and wait. He wasn't actually put in jail for that. And on July 28, 2017, Tipton went to a day-long hearing. He did not testify. His ex-wife did testify that they were... in in fact, or were in fact in Billings the time the crime occurred. The judge ruled that he was in fact guilty after three months of studying this case extensively. Sadly, the state Supreme Court unanimously ruled to dismiss with prejudice the charges against Tipton, which means the state can never charge him again for this crime. He never has to pay for sexually assaulting a little girl, and Linda does, doesn't get justice. Which is crazy that they went through all the Rig and roll to charge him. To charge him and nothing comes out of it. And they tried for three three separate, like, loopholes mm -hmm. to try. And the state just denied it every single time. What the hell, Montana? Yeah. After being released, Jimmy Ray Bromgard sued, sued the state of Montana and got a settlement of $3.5 million in 2008. He bought some land in Billings, Montana and spends his days with his girlfriend and their two children. He enjoys working on cars and living life to the fullest. Feels like he accomplished more in seven years than most people do in 15 because he lost so much time and doesn't really want to waste it anymore. Mm -hmm. Linda lives with her husband, and I won't lie, tragedy after tragedy kind of hit this family like a domino effect after the rape. Not really going to get into it because the other podcast does, but like her sister's son dies when he's only a year Aww. old. Their parents get divorced. It's just, it's sad. And... That's the case of Linda Glantz and the wrongfully convicted Jim, Jimmy Ray Bromgard. Poor guy. I know. Oh, Linda. I know. And to know who it is. I know. Where does he live now? Where does Ronald live? Yeah. In Billings where Linda lives? I want to say, I don't think he's in Billings. I think that he's in Montana still though. And he lives with his sister-in-law because his brother's in prison for his sex crimes. And 
they it's just it's a mess why is a sister-in-law still a sister-in-law i don't know I'd she literally just defends him to the death oh my god he was he didn't do it he has mental health issues and every time you guys come around here he goes back into a deep dark hole of depression blah 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 blah. we've had it just as bad as linda fuck that yeah so if you have any suggestions for april's topic episode feel free to dm us we love hearing from you guys with that you can find us on instagram at dark and deadly pod or tiktok at dark and deadly pod make sure you turn on your notifications so you can know as soon as we post a new episode especially since we suck and we hope you have a wonderful night a week um i do two recommendations for wrongfully convicted things i'm sure if you have not seen it you've lived under a rock making a murderer mm-hmm. there are two seasons i think it's wonderful i haven't seen it Horror. <gasps> heard it. is it a podcast no it's a show, show on netflix oh i've heard of it i haven't watched you it. haven't watched it no Haley, you have to watch it you okay. will binge it all Okay. It is fascinating and so messed up. Okay. It's so bad. Um, and then the other is Just Mercy. It's a movie. On Netflix? On, I don't believe it's on Netflix. Uh, Google it and click the little watch movie okay. button. But um, it's really good. It's about wrong, wrongfully convicted. Okay. So. Good little tip dit. Tip bit. Tip dit. Tip. What? <laughs> 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 All right. Okay, bye. Bye.